From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Monday, October 8th. I'm Marco Werman. Republican nominee Mitt Romney staked out his vision for foreign policy today, a vision he says that's starkly different from Barack Obama's, especially in the Middle East. I know the president hopes for a safer, freer, and more prosperous Middle East allied with us. I share this hope. But hope is not a strategy. But a critic says Romney's own strategy is mostly aspirational. No, he doesn't really have much of a strategy here beyond uh, a rather uh, touching belief in the power of his own rhetoric. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives telling who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Less than a month before the election, Mitt Romney laid out his vision today for an American foreign policy for the next four years. The Republican nominee blasted President Obama's leadership in the Middle East in a speech at the Virginia Military Institute. And Romney accused the president of abandoning America's role as the global leader. Our friends and allies across the globe don't want less American leadership. They want more, more of our moral support more of our security cooperation, more of our trade, more of our assistance in building free societies and thriving economies. First, to get a sense of the mood during Romney's talk at VMI, we turn to a cadet at the Institute. Russell East was in the audience. He's 22 years old and in his fourth and final year at VMI. Uh, Tell me, first of all, Russell, what was the mood there as Romney uh, addressed foreign policy today? The atmosphere was very high. It was a lot of high energy. Everybody's pretty excited that he was coming down to VMI to speak. There's a lot of media there. The cadets were excited to hear what he had to say, and, and they really were just interested in, in knowing what was going to go on, You know what his, what his ideals were for the next few years. Now, foreign policy has not been Mitt Romney's strong suit, and to be fair, uh, the U.S. place in the rest of the world overall hasn't been high on either candidate's agenda during the campaign. But uh, did you feel like you were listening to someone who is on top of the foreign policy game? Well, in my opinion, sir, I believe so. I think he put it in a plain terms that set out a, a clear set of principles and standards that he thinks we need to adhere to to be successful in the Middle East. It sure sounded like he was headed in the right direction from where I was sitting, but nothing's ever perfect. It's going to take a lot of work either way. Now, Mitt Romney uh, did speak in Virginia, and Virginia is leaning towards Romney, it seems. And apparently you are something of a conservative yourself. You've leaned in that direction in the past. Is that correct? Uh, yes, sir. But I try to take every voting uh opportunity with a grain of salt. But by that, I mean that I try to make every decision with as much knowledge as I possibly can have. You know, I try to be an informed citizen whenever I make a decision and Republican or Democrat. I really just want our country to be led by someone who who I think can do the best job at it. 
So, Russell Lee, the final presidential debate uh, in a couple of weeks is going to be about foreign policy. You'll get a chance to hear both candidates uh, speak about their vision for foreign policy. Are you at a point where you're still open to what President Obama has to say? Or did you feel like you got pretty much what you wanted to hear today from Governor Romney? Oh, I'm absolutely open, sir. I would still like to hear both of them about what they have to say. I enjoyed what Governor Romney said today, but, well, you know, again, we'll see. We'll see if that stays exactly the same or if he manipulates that at all in the next presidential debate. And we'll hear how Obama, uh, President Obama, excuse me, responds to it all. So it'll be it'll be a really interesting time for, you know, all the VMI cadets and pretty much everybody to to hear about what the, the two presidents can chase have to say. That was Russell East, a cadet at Virginia Military Institute. Mark Lynch also watched Romney's speech, though not from the audience. Lynch directs the Institute for Middle East Studies at George Washington University. He says he didn't see much contrast between Governor Romney's vision and the current policies of the Obama White House. He's adopting the same basic position on Iran, basically the same position on Syria, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Arab Spring. Pretty much the only real difference, I think, lay in the way he characterized al-Qaeda today. And he seems to see al-Qaeda as, uh, as a rising threat and uh, one which is uh, increasingly threatening the United States across the region. And here, I think the Obama administration is on much stronger ground, seeing this as a problem and one which has to be confronted, but not being willing to surrender to the notion that uh, suddenly the Arab Spring has given way to this unified Islamic challenge. I think Obama has been much better at seeing the ways, the complexities of what's been happening in the Arab world. And I think it would be quite dangerous, actually, to go back to the old uh, Bush administration thinking about al-Qaeda representing the Islamic world and us being engaged in a grand clash of civilizations. Right. Well, let's take a, a listen to Romney's take on one of the most critical foreign policy issues of the day, Syria. Here's what he had to say today. In Syria, I'll work with our partners to identify and organize those members of the opposition who share our values and then ensure that they obtain the arms they need to defeat Assad's tanks and helicopters and fighter jets. Iran is sending arms to Assad because they know his downfall would be a strategic defeat for them. We should be working no less vigorously through our international partners to support the many Syrians who would deliver that defeat to Iran rather than sitting on the sidelines. So, Mark Lynch, arming the opposition. I mean, Obama and the White House have been pretty reticent to come out and say that. Isn't that markedly different from uh, what uh, the White House is currently doing? The White House has been working closely trying to organize the Syrian opposition for quite some time. And they've been, I think, appropriately cautious about uh, the trends within the opposition, uh, jihadists, uh, groups that are primarily local warlords, people who we don't know what they would do with the weapons once they had them. And I think we're right to be cautious about that. I am glad that he refrained from calling for military intervention, which I think we would agree is likely to be a disaster. So why do you think uh, Mitt Romney is unpacking foreign policy now? I think that he wants to establish himself as a legitimate commander in chief. But He's not really trying to bridge the hard questions and and the divisions inside even the Republican Party. So, for example, if you take something like uh, democracy in Egypt or the Arab Spring in general, uh, I think Republicans seriously disagree among themselves about whether that's a good thing or a dangerous thing, whether this is about promoting freedom or about combating Islam. He's not been able to bridge that gap and come out firmly and clearly to say, what is it that 
that he would actually do? Is he going to want to promote democracy and, and bring about transitions? From a policy perspective, it's just very difficult to find uh, points of difference with which we can really engage. Mark Lynch directs the Institute for Middle East Studies at George Washington University. Thank you. Thank you. In his speech, Romney quoted General George Marshall saying the only way human beings can win a war is to prevent it. But it was Dwight Eisenhower who really mastered the art of prevention. Eisenhower was president from 1952 to 1961. In the popular imagination, at least the popular white imagination, it was an idyllic period in America, a mostly peaceful interlude between the Korean and Vietnam Wars. In his new biography of Eisenhower, author Evan Thomas argues that if the 1950s were peaceful, it was because of Eisenhower's cunning. Ike combined the skills of a brilliant military strategist with a savvy card player. The book is called Ike's Bluff. Ike's central insight was that uh, small wars lead to big wars. It may sound obvious, but the, the, the fad of the day was this idea of limited war and that you could fight these brush fire wars. And that most of the intellectuals, Henry Kissinger and so forth, believe that. Ike did not. Ike was a warrior who'd seen a lot of war, and he knew from his own experience in reading Clausewitz uh, on war that uh, wars are mutating monsters. They can get out of control. So Ike's bluff was to threaten the ultimate war in order to avoid fighting any war because he feared that once we started fighting a small war, it would spiral into a big one. So the Mm. bluff was to threaten to go all the way. Give us an example of, of, of how Eisenhower takes, you know, the, the, the poker face and works it into uh, his military strategy. Well, Eisenhower had frequent uh, crises uh, with communist bloc countries. And in Berlin in 1958-59, uh, uh, the Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, has said the West has got to be out of Berlin in six months. Ultimatum. Now, this is a huge crisis for the West. And most people want to rush troops Uh, to be able to fight some kind of conventional war against the Russians, Eisenhower cuts our troop strength because he wants to make it clear, and he says this in the National Security Council, we're not going to gradually put, you know, start with the white chips and get to the blue chips, blue chips being nuclear weapons. Hmm. It's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. That's the only strategy I have. And, in fact, the Russians backed off. Did did Eisenhower play poker? Was he a a, a good card player? Eisenhower was a great – he was so good. That he had to quit because he was taking too much money away from his fellow officers uh, and it was hurting his career. He switched to bridge. <laughs> now, uh, Evan, you recount this chilling story, which happened after uh, Eisenhower left office, about uh, what one of uh, Kennedy's informal advisors, Dean Acheson, told uh, JFK uh, about what he should uh, consider for when he might use the bomb. And he says, you know, you need to give that question the most careful and private consideration well before the time when the choice might present itself. Reach your conclusion. And then uh, this is the really eerie part. Tell no one about it at all what your conclusion is. I mean, such a heavy piece of advice. Did, did Ike have kind of similar secrets bottled up inside? Yes. I mean, that that I was reading George Bundy's book when I saw that and it just popped out at me because that is the story of Eisenhower. You know, talk about the loneliness of command. Uh, Eisenhower never told anyone whether he was willing to use nuclear bombs. And this is really the advice that Atchison was giving Kennedy. The ultimate responsibility for the chief executive in this age is that you can't tell anybody because if you do, then you lose the deterrent effect. If you start talking about when you'd actually use these things, the deterrent effect is gone. Uh, So Ike had to hold it 
this terrible knowledge to himself, never told anybody whether he would or would not have used these weapons. His aides speculated that he wouldn't have, but he never said. He was dealing with this new nuclear reality, as you point out, Evan, a a reordered world. Do do you see any resonance with what President Obama and his successors may be facing with with a nuclear Iran or other countries acquiring the bomb? Well, it's it's you know, it's Ike all over again because we're going to have to figure out whether to to go go for it or not. Uh, There's a terrible decision facing Obama. He has said we're not going to contain Iran. That's that's what he said. So that means if Iran gets the bomb, we're going to have to take it out. I think Ike, if he was alive, would have been furiously doing covert action, mm. as we are, actually, as the Israelis are, Stutznik and these you know, computer viruses or bugs, right. and trying to kill Iranian scientists. I think, that, I think under Eisenhower, the, the CIA would be all over Iran. Ultimately, though, I think if Eisenhower felt that Iran had the bomb, he would not want the Israelis to do it because not because of some some diplomatic reason, but because the Israelis are not that capable of it. They don't have bunker busters. They don't have the bombs you really need to get it done. They can't refuel. They can't have waves of aircraft. I think if Eisenhower would go for it, Eisenhower was an all or nothing guy. And I think that if he thought the Iranians had a bomb, he would seriously consider using U.S. force to take it out. Back to that black ops secret that the president keeps to uh, himself, uh, as Eisenhower did, as Kennedy did. Um, is that still how it works at the White House? Does anyone in the White House today know what uh, Obama is thinking about the bomb? I don't think it's the same because you don't have the same nuclear standoff with the Soviet Union. Uh, I, and I think, I hope uh, Obama really talks out these difficult decisions about Iran. I mean, you know, I was reading Michael Lewis had a had a piece about Obama and Vanity Fair, and it sounded like Obama was a fairly Socratic questioner of his own age. You know, he wanted to have intense internal debate. I hope so. I hope he's not just holding it for himself. Evan Thomas, the author of Ike's Bluff, just out. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you. This was great. We have more great material on Ike's Bluff, including a blog post and a largely forgotten Eisenhower speech where he proposed abandoning the nuclear arms race altogether. They're at theworld.org. This is PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save a Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. And by PBS and Frontline, presenting The Choice 2012, a definitive look at the presidential candidates, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. There's been a lot of criticism of the use of drones in America's foreign policy, but now scientists are experimenting with drones in a completely different way. They're using the unmanned aircraft to try to protect orangutans on the Indonesian island of Sumatra. The world science correspondent Ritu Chatterjee joins me to talk about these conservation drones. And thank goodness, Ritu, the drones are going to protect orangutans. But why drones? You see, Marco, unlike other great ape species like, say, chimps or gorillas, orangutans are tree-dwelling animals. So they are a little harder to study. I spoke with primatologist Serge Wick, the guy behind this new idea. He is at Liverpool John Moores University in the UK. And he says the way he monitors orangutan populations is by counting nests that are high up on trees. 
Orangutans make a nest almost every day at nighttime, and by counting the nests, we can uh, estimate the orangutan density. Right, I got it. So if you're doing the survey on foot, you're going to have to somehow get high up in those trees. Or count them from down below. So it's it's a difficult task, right? And it's mm. time-consuming and it's expensive. Wick told me that his last survey cost him about $250,000. And that's why he thought, well, why not try drones? Right. And drones are actually cheaper? Definitely. A single drone costs only about three dollars to $4,000. And you can cover a big swath in, say, half an hour. Right. And so when they take these photographs, these drones, are they photographing the primates themselves or their habitats or nests that you're talking about? So the drones are taking pictures of everything, right? And they include uh, the nests. And if there are animals on it, they get pictures of that as well. And then when the drones come back, they can retrieve the pictures. And I also believe that the latest drone that they've used has a video camera capable of transmitting back the images live. So as the drone's up in the air, the scientists can see what it's seeing. So you get a lot of data collection, you get these live video feeds and some great photographs of the orangutans and their habitats. How does this actually help save the species, though? So you have a better way to monitor the species population, right? And so you're doing it in over much shorter periods of time. So any fluctuations in the population, you can get a better sense of it much more quickly. But the drones are bringing back a lot more information than just these animals and their nests. They're helping keep track of other activities, human activities in the forest. Here's Wick again. We can see illegal activities such as logging, on the photos. We can see agricultural uses on the images. We can, for instance, see if somebody is planting corn or uh, oranges. So you get an enormous amount of detailed information from the images that these drones capture. And all this information will help him and his colleagues and the Sumatran authorities reduce the threats to orangutan population, including perhaps in the future poaching. Wow, fascinating. Orangutans and the natural world around them, thanks to conservation drones. The world science correspondent, Ritu Chatterjee, thanks for stopping by. You're welcome, Marco. And you can learn more about these conservation drones. Ritu has a whole interview with Serge Wick on her science podcast. You can download it at theworld.org slash science. Remember this tune? If you don't recall it from the 70s, you might have come across it last month during the Republican National Convention. The Boys Are Back in Town by the Irish rockers Thin Lizzy was the walk-on music for Mitt Romney's running mate, Paul Ryan, as he took to the stage. The lead singer was Phil Lynott. He died in 1986 after years of drug and alcohol abuse. But his mother, Philomena Lynott, says her son wouldn't have appreciated his song being used by the Republican ticket. Philomena, now 81, recently spoke with the BBC. It turns out her life was no less difficult than her son's. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. In the 1940s, Philomena Lynott was living in the English city of Birmingham. She'd left Ireland to take a job there as a nurse, and in the evenings she'd go out on the town. I used to go dancing, and while I was at the dance hall one night... A very tall, dark man walked right across the whole of the room and asked me to dance, and I did. The man was black, from Guyana. He was in the military, Lynott remembers. And when the pair came off the dance floor together, everyone else moved away. There wasn't much tolerance for that kind of thing back then. 
let alone for an ongoing relationship. People looked at you like you were vermin because you were in the company of a black man. It was horrendous. I, I, I couldn't understand it. I was only 17 or going on 18. She was young then, and soon she was pregnant. Lynott couldn't tell her family back in Ireland, so she looked for other options. I remembered an old wives' tale that if you bought a little bottle of gin and you got some copper pennies and if you boiled the gin and threw the pennies in and then sipped their hot spirit, you would get rid of your baby. But as the smell of the hot gin went up my nostrils, I started dry reaching. Philomena felt so sick she couldn't get the gin down. And so, some months later, old wives' tale or not, little Phil Lynott was born. At that moment, his father had moved on and was unaware of the birth, and so mother and son went to live in a home for unmarried women in Birmingham. I was the only one with a black baby, and they battered me, spat on me. Nobody cared. The home was run by nuns, and they pushed Philomena to give her son up for adoption. She refused and sent a letter to her mother in Ireland, and she included a photograph of her biracial son. They had to put her to bed, the shock she got. But eventually me mammy and daddy said they would take him and rear him. They hid it from everybody that he was mine. They said that he belonged to an African lady who had died. So Phil Lynott, later of Thin Lizzy, was raised by his grandparents rather than by his mother. Philomena says she was more of a big sister than a mum. And she says, years later, she missed the signs of serious drug abuse in her son. She says she didn't notice because he was touring all the time. And when he'd been touring, he'd put on weight. Philomena figured he was healthy. But Phil Lynott died in 1986, at the age of 36. They didn't want me there when he passed because they figured I'd... Um, lose my reason, which I did. When he died, I died for five years. I, I, I think it's a dreadful waste, but I, what can you do? What is to be, will be. A couple of years back, Philomena Lynott revealed that she'd had two other babies, a boy and a girl, and had given them both up for adoption. It was a secret she'd kept for half a century. The two, when they became adults, located Lynott and made contact. She says she has good relationships with both her children now. With all three, if you count Phil. I listen to his music every single day. I also visit his resting place every day because it's only around the corner from my house. I go around and I, I pour water on his stone. I call it washing his face. And then when I'm leaving, I give him a kick for breaking my heart. For the world, I'm Alex Caliphant. This is PRI Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. Ahead on the world, a National Geographic photographer finds life in America too black and white. When you start looking at a place like Mexico, which just washes color on, on all these buildings, or you go to India, I mean, India is so alive with color. And I come home and I'm like, wow, everybody's in black and brown and gray. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, presenting the Save-A-Life Simulator, an interactive online experience designed to teach the public life-saving responses to sudden cardiac arrest. Each day, thousands die from cardiac arrest. Learn how to respond at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez has breezed into a fourth term in office. Chavez has held power for 14 years, and yesterday's victory over Enrique Capriles gives him even more time to consolidate his socialist revolution. But Chavez has been treated for cancer and is still not sure whether he'll survive to the end of his new six-year term. John Otis has a story. Hugo Rafael Chavez Fría, con el 54.42% de los votos. Although several polls predicted a tight race, Chavez won easily. The National Electoral Council announced that the president had topped Capriles by nearly 10 percentage points. Capriles quickly accepted the result and congratulated Chavez. Y quiero también felicitar al candidato al presidente de la República. The news sparked celebrations across the country for what was an especially sweet victory for Chavez. The president has been undergoing treatment for cancer, and the illness forced him to campaign at half speed. He also had to win over voters amid rising crime, high inflation, and rolling blackouts. But many Venezuelans opted to stick with Chavez, who has funneled billions of oil profits into social programs that cut poverty in half. Many people do love him. It's a fact. Max Vasquez is a businessman in the western city of San Cristobal. He says Chavez draws support from many impoverished Venezuelans who view the president as a surrogate father. So that father figure that everyone needs, many of them found it in Chavez. You know, the strong person who has a strong will, who has a voice of command. In his victory speech, Chavez said he intends to deepen the country's socialist revolution. Venezuela will never go back to the neoliberal economic policies of the past, Chavez told a huge crowd in Caracas. Venezuela will continue down the path towards 21st century socialism. In San Cristobal, the prospect of six more years of Chavez has many in the opposition deeply worried. Cesar Perez is the governor of surrounding Táchira State and a fierce Chavez critic. We're going to get more of the same medicine. We will see more authoritarianism, more state intervention in the economy, more human rights violations, and more problems for the private sector. Yet it's unclear whether Chavez will be healthy enough to administer that medicine. Venezuela's constitution calls for a new election if a president dies during the first four years of the term. If a president dies during the last two years, the vice president would finish the term. But Chavez has not named a vice president. 
Many of the president's supporters refuse to speculate about a Venezuela without Chavez. Estrella Uribe works for the Chavez campaign in San Cristobal. She tells me Chavez's desire to help the people has given him the will to live. She says the people will stick with him until the very end. For the opposition, there will be little time to lick the wounds from Sunday's defeat. Over the next six months, Venezuelans will vote for governors and mayors. These elections are key because Chavez loyalists control all branches of the federal government. Daniel Ceballos is a state lawmaker in Táchira. He points out that in past elections, opposition candidates have done well at the state and local level. So, even though Chávez crushed Capriles on Sunday, it's not the end of the world. For The World, I'm John Otis, San Cristobal, Venezuela. A majority of Venezuelans may be happy to have Chávez stay on. The U.S. government isn't so thrilled, though. U.S. relations with Chávez have long been tense, and they're not likely to get any better with yesterday's vote. Michael Shifter is president of the Inter-American Dialogue, a U.S.-based think tank. Now, Michael, the U.S. and Venezuela, I think it's fair to say, haven't been BFFs for a long time, to say the least, uh, not since Hugo Chavez first entered office uh, some 12 years ago. Where does this new term in office leave U.S.-Venezuelan relations? I don't think there's a lot that's going to change very much. I think the political tensions are going to continue, and yet Venezuela is going to continue to sell a lot of oil to the United States. Uh, I think that economic relationship, that trade relationship will remain intact, but I just don't see any reducing of tensions between the two governments. There's no U.S. ambassador in Caracas, and there's no Venezuelan ambassador here in Washington, and uh, I really doubt that's going to change. One of the things that Hugo Chavez has been saying a lot lately, though, is that uh, he's going to sell less oil to the U.S., and more of it to Asia. So how concerned is the U.S. by this plan, especially with uh, recent reports showing that Venezuela has surpassed Saudi Arabia in terms of the size of its proven oil reserves? I don't think the U.S. is terribly concerned because Chavez has been saying this for a long time. And uh, the data are that while there's been some modest increase in uh, the sale of of oil to to China and other countries in Asia, it's been very, very modest. The whole system is set up for uh, selling crude oil to the United States. The refineries are in the United States. This has been developed over decades, and it really doesn't make a lot of economic sense for Chavez to ship oil and sell oil to, to Asia. What kind of differences would you see coming out of a Romney White House and an Obama White House uh, dealing with Hugo Chavez? I think we probably see a little stronger rhetoric with a, a Romney uh, White House. Uh, the Obama White House has been quite restrained in its statements and had really just been following developments in, in Venezuela. Clearly, there's a lot of uh, strain and friction but there really hasn't been a lot of rhetoric going back and forth. And I think uh, certainly what we've heard in the Romney campaign is, I think, a little bit more noise, a little bit more critical. Uh, President Obama mentioned in a uh, interview that Venezuela doesn't represent a security threat to the United States. That was immediately responded to by the Romney campaign, and then they took a much harder line. Mm. But beyond the rhetoric, I'm not sure in practice you're going to see a big difference between the two administrations. Now, Hugo Chavez has made a point of inviting Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, to uh, Venezuela, and uh, he may sincerely consider him a friend, but it also seems to help that Ahmadinejad is also an American antagonist, and Chavez knows that as well. Do you think that kind of provocation is going to continue, and how much does the Iran connection present a legitimate problem for the U.S.? 
Well, I think the Iran connection is the principal concern of the United States. I think it's much less Venezuela's uh, political situation, although that's a worry. But I think it's really it's, – its alliances and especially with a country like Iran, which does re- represent a security threat to the United States. I think since Chavez came to power in 1999, he's been intent on curtailing the influence of the United States, the power of the United States, and he has forged alliances both within Latin America and throughout the world with countries that are not terribly friendly with the United States. I don't see him backing off on that, but I also don't know how much damage he's really able to do. Even if he's been reelected, he's obviously ill. He faces a stronger opposition. He's got terribly serious governance problems, and his capacity to follow through on some of these alliances and really cause a problem for the United States, I think is limited, although I'm sure Washington is following very closely the developments, especially with Iran, and will continue to do so no matter who is in the White House come uh, January. Michael Shifter, president of the Inter-American Dialogue, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. A colorful cast of cartoon characters figures in today's GeoQuiz. Maybe you're acquainted with the cowboy named Lucky Luke, or you've come across the fearless reporter Tintin, who travels with his faithful dog Snowy. And let's not forget the bluish Smurfs who love to eat sarsaparilla. So the cartoonists who created these characters all come from a country that once dominated the comic book industry. We'll hear how that country's fighting to reclaim its status as king of the hill in the world of cartoons. But first, here's another hint. This is one of Europe's so-called low countries, the region that surrounds the river valleys of the Rhine and Meuse rivers. Can you name it? The answer is coming up in less than 10 minutes. From cartoons to something now more lifelike, National Geographic is putting out a new book of lush, evocative photographs. The chapters aren't organized by subject or even location. They're grouped by color. National Geographic photographer Annie Griffiths curated the book, Life in Color, and she selected many images that have never been published before. Some go back more than 100 years. Griffiths says Life in Color explores the vivid colors in National Geographic's archives. The blue chapter is really quite fun because there's everything from this painted face that's an extraordinary blue to a picture of a wild cat that there's no blue in the picture except its eyes. And we did the blues of the ocean, but then we also did blue in unexpected places. You know, we do the full range between stunning landscapes, wildlife, cultures. Like what? Give us an example there. Well, I mean, there's one picture I quite love where the whole picture is gray and dark, except for a monk who's walking away. And he's very small in the frame, but his, he's got this flowing orange robe. Oh, I love that photograph. I actually singled that out myself. He's in front of the Tour of Montparnasse in Paris. Mm-hmm. So those kind of little touches of color sometimes complete the picture. It wouldn't be as interesting without. What do we learn about other places, other cultures through color? 
Well, color is, is a huge expression of self. And I think that, it, you know, it's very interesting. I find that Americans and Europeans are pretty boring. You know, we, <laughs> we really are. When you, when you start looking at a place like Mexico, which just washes color on, on all these buildings, and you go to Africa and you look at the incredible colors, of, especially the women choose to wear, or you go to India. I mean, India is so alive with color. And I come home and I'm like, wow, everybody's in black and brown and gray. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of places that you've been to, uh, and some of your photographs from those places are featured in this book. And just kind of free associate. Give us a color that uh, you think of when you think of Cape Town, South Africa, for example. White. Wow. Really? Yeah, because Cape Town, it's one of those jewels of a city, and there's so many white buildings and then the sea beyond. It's funny because your photo features colors pretty much everything other than white uh, from <laughs> Cape Town, and I, my mind immediately goes to the photos of those beautiful multicolored buildings in Cape Town. Well, and that's a very special part of Cape Town mm -hmm. where the whole neighborhood is done in these vivid colors. And uh, I remember waiting because I wanted to get it without traffic and with interesting light. And finally it happened. There was an absolutely gorgeous morning where people were just waking up. What is the color that you think of when you think Angangueo, Mexico? <laughs> Pink. Pink. Pink and green and blue. And, you know, that's what I love about cultures like Mexico, where they just splash their buildings with colors. And I think it's really indicative of the Latin spirit. It's a warm, outgoing culture. You know, Annie, this book also uses quite a few archival pictures uh, going way back to the early part of the 20th century, and many of them are gorgeous portraits of women, one from Algeria in 1917, one from Italy in uh -huh. 1903. And then there's this shot of a, a woman from Kenya, 1909. She's wearing this turban and is holding a pet deer or gazelle, and she has this almost defiant gaze, really striking. Describe this a little bit more for us and, and what you saw in it. I love this photograph, and I think that what we see as a defiant gaze right now is actually indicative of the fact that this woman has probably never been photographed before, and she is presenting herself without any knowledge of posing or smiling as, as we do today. So I think that's very revealing when you see a person simply be. It carries a really interesting weight in the photograph. There's also a, a young woman from the Philippines wearing traditional dress. She's bare-breasted as well as a Bedouin woman later in the book. I mean, both of these kind of look like painted postcards. Do you think the mission of National Geographic in the early 1900s was to capture exotic people for the Western eye? Sure. I think there was a lot of that. The photographers were mostly men. And white men, too. For, white for men. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they were in pursuit of the exotic. And they'd send it back to the white male editors, and they were likely to choose a beautiful woman, I would guess, in, in many instances. There was a real newness about the whole notion of photographing around the world. And I think that when you look at it with a historic perspective, by the time we got into the 50s and 60s, most people from my generation remember that it was the only magazine on your parents' coffee table that mm. were see breasts. <laughs> but prior to that, I think it was, it sounds like counterintuitive, but it, it was sort of an innocence that this was a big deal. And in the case of the woman you mentioned, the Filipino woman, mm. that picture looks to me like it was hand colored. And I think there are a lot of those experimentations that happened because photography was relatively new. Life in Color is the title of the book. It's curated 
by a National Geographic staff photographer, Annie Griffiths, whose work is also featured in it. Annie, very good to speak with you. Thank you. Nice to speak with you, Marco. You can see a slideshow of some of the spectacular photos Annie and I just talked about. One of my personal favorites, a stunning terraced rice field in China that looks as unreal as a painting by Van Gogh. All that is at theworld.org. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Frontline. Barack Obama and Mitt Romney have crafted their campaign narratives telling who they are and how they would lead. But there's more to their stories, revealing interviews and fresh insights on Frontline's The Choice 2012, Tuesday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Time for a little comic relief. Comic book relief, that is. Belgium is a country that was once at the heart of the comic book industry, and Belgium is the answer to our geo-quiz today. But with the rise of American superheroes, Japanese anime, and others, the Belgian comic industry has stagnated. Well, now Belgium's fighting back, and it's trying to become a hub of comic innovation once again. Don Duncan has more from Brussels. During the recent annual Belgian Comic Book Festival, enormous balloons featuring comic strip characters paraded down the main streets of Brussels. Roadrunner sauntered along, followed by a bouncy SpongeBob SquarePants. But despite the cheer, there is something missing. Not one of these gigantic parading balloons was of a Belgian character. In the industry, Belgium is referred to as the home of the comic book. That's because, since the 1920s, Belgian artists blazed a trail of innovation, inventing the speech bubble, for example, as well as the drawing technique called clear line, which moved comic books from cartoonish blobs of colour to a sharper kind of realism. By the 1970s, Belgian artists drew about 80% of all comics in Europe, says comic book historian Thierry Balfoy. The Belgian comic book became so famous and established because of the success of Tintin. Tintin, which still sells over one million comic books a year worldwide, was the industry leader between the 20s and the 70s. But by the 1980s, Belgium had become a victim of its own initial successes. Tintin and other big Belgian comics couldn't reinvent themselves because they had developed a very clear, loyal fan base. And they were also trapped in a very Catholic Belgium at the time. This is how Belgium got its market share eaten up, initially by new, edgier French comics. Today, most of the Belgian publishing houses have been bought up by multinationals. The business is mainly controlled from Paris, London or Tokyo. But Belgium is fighting back by positioning itself as a centre of innovation and excellence for the rest of the industry. It set up the Comic Book Commission in 2007, a government body with an annual budget of $170,000. The commission funds 30 to 40 new projects a year to advance technical and aesthetic aspects of comic book publishing. Commission Director Bruno Marx says the initiative goes beyond just paper and ink. Il y a une dimension symbolique aussi. The symbolic element of all this is that it helps the comic strip emerge from the category of subculture or subgenre. A comic book author is a literary author in his own right. 
And after five years of state support, signs of success are beginning to show on the once stagnant Belgian comic book landscape. This small Brussels office is home to Grandpapier.org, a small Belgian comic book publishing house that is trying to move the comic book into the next frontier in comics publishing, the internet. While novels have the e-book, comic books have no digital equivalent yet. And so developing a digital format that will be adopted as a standard by the industry is Grandpapier.org's next big thing, says founder Sasha Gerg. We must see how we can manage to automatically generate digital formats from comic stories posted to our site so people can either go on Grandpapier.org or download a comic book as an e-comic. If Belgium succeeds in developing an e-comic standard and implementing its other innovations, it will once again play a crucial role in the global comic book industry. It may be a big if, but considering the country's comic book history, this may be the beginning of a comeback. And so we may well be seeing a few giant balloon figures of new Belgian characters parade the streets during the annual comic book festival in years to come. For the world, this is Don Duncan in Brussels. Belgian artists sketching the future of their industry. Don visited a Belgian comic exhibit, and you can too. He's got a slideshow. It's at theworld.org. And finally, today is a Jewish holiday of Simchat Torah, which literally means joy of the Torah. It's the one day of the year that sacred Torah scrolls are taken outside from synagogues so people can literally sing and dance in the streets with their holy scriptures. For more than 20 years running during the holiday, Israelis have been visiting a Muslim village outside of Jerusalem for a different kind of musical celebration. The world's Matthew Bell has more. Calling a live music venue The Crypt might bring to mind a beer-soaked basement for heavy metal bands. At least the basement part rings true for this place. It's built over an ancient cistern that dates back to the second century. Day after day, alone on a hill. Israeli guitarist Adi Cohen offers up this classic in the cozy basement of the Crusader Benedictine Church. It's one of the main stages for the Abu Ghosh Vocal Music Festival. And whatever your feelings about Beatles covers, the room makes for a special listening experience. Brother Olivier helps run the monastery, whose walls were built by Crusader Knights a thousand years ago. They thought that here was the place of Emmaus, of the Gospel. And that's why they built a church which, by miracle, has never been destroyed. The walls are at least nine feet thick. It's incredible. But the crypt is just one of several stages at this celebration of vocal music. Up the hill is another church at 100 years old. This one's much newer. But it's the only church in Israel that can fit an audience of 600, just the kind of place meant to hear choir music by Sergei Rachmaninoff. With a statue of the Virgin Mary looking on from stage left, the Israeli kibbutz choir sang some Mendelssohn, some Brahms, and a contemporary piece by American composer Eric Whitaker called Cloudburst. Cloudburst. 
In a country that many see as becoming more and more religiously conservative, the Vocal Music Festival seems like an oasis of the secular Israeli life. Observant Jews might frown on the very idea of singing in a Christian house of worship, but music director Hannah Tzur says that doesn't go for everyone. It was a soloist here uh, when he's religious, and uh, the rabbi said, how can you sing in a church? So he said, God gave all human beings Mozart and Schubert, not only for one. <laughs> in a region where God so often pulls people apart, though, it's at least somewhat refreshing to see Israelis visiting a Muslim village to listen to music performed in a Roman-era Catholic church. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. And that's all for us today. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.